0: You're listening to Wiretap with Jonathan Goldstein on CBC Radio 1 and Sirius Satellite Radio 137. Today's episode, A Hundred False Messiahs.
1: Rabbi Pupko, w- what are some of the qualifications for being the Messiah? Uh,
0: in the
2: Jewish conception of the Messiah, the person must be a descendant of the house of King David. Uh, he, uh, the person is assumed to be uh, righteous, scholarly, and a person of great courage.
1: And I mean, he could just be anybody. I mean, he could be, you know, like working as a concierge or something like that.
2: Absolutely. You know, there's a beautiful Talmudic parable which talks about a man goes up to heaven. And when he comes back to earth, they ask him, what have you seen in heaven? And he said, the world is upside down. I said, what do you mean the world is upside down? He says, those who we respect and honor in this world are ignored in the next world, and those who we ignored here, they are exalted in the next world. I would say that righteousness and the humility go hand in hand, and often those who are most righteous are are most below the radar.
1: Were there like times in history where it really looked good, like all the stars were in alignment, and a certain person emerged who seemed to have all the messianic qualifications? Like I'll say when... something
2: interesting, the messianic fervor peaks either when things are terribly bad or when, they're, or, or when they seem to be wonderful. Mm-hmm. In recent history, many saw the advent of the terror around World War II as the harbinger of the messianic age because how much worse could it get without the Messiah coming to save the situation? Mm-hmm. So in other words, when things are terrible or when things are, are looking great, there's a messianic anticipation that that is awakened.
1: Can you imagine circumstances in which you would be getting your hopes up?
2: You know, there was a time when I was younger when I would answer that question differently. And um, uh, I, honestly, I would say at this juncture in life that, the, that, that I, li- I, li- I like to see steps, in the, at least in the Messianic direction. In other words, a little bit more peace in the world, a little bit more humility, and a little more righteousness. And uh, let's try to be satisfied with that.
1: Practically, like, you know, if the, the Messiah were to come this evening, what would tomorrow be like for me?
2: Um, my interesting view is that it means the in-gathering of the exile it means all the Jews would be living in, in Israel It means that there will be universal peace and universal monotheism
1: So what's going to be, I'm going to pack my bags and move to Israel tomorrow?
2: Yeah
1: well, Let's say I'm not crazy about the, the heat, the dryness
2: Well, there is air conditioning
1: <laughs> So that would be it, I, you know, if he came tonight I wouldn't have to go to work in the morning? I mean, we
2: would He's be done with go working? work, Jonathan, you can't get out of work the messianic age is not a time of miracles. The world will go on the way it was. Uh, people will get sick and die. People will go and earn a living. The only difference is the, uh, that there will be peace.
1: So, how how would God? Uh, I mean, is the, the the scriptures are they clear about like how God would reveal Himself?
2: They, most of the scripture focuses on Twitter. There it'll be through Twitter.
1: God will reveal Himself in little bits and pieces through Twitter. Right. Uh huh. It's very coy, <laughs> our,
2: our, our Lord. Yeah. No, we don't know. I mean, these again, uh, the, those writing wrote about this many centuries ago, and uh, they envisioned uh, a person of great uh, eloquence and charisma and uh, leadership who would uh, inspire people.
1: But what about, like, the flashy stuff, like, you know, Flying around and and being able to control nature. Um,
2: According to Maimonides, in most opinions in Jewish life, the the Messiah will not necessarily perform any miracles, nor will he even be possessed of any prophetic uh, skill at all. He will be a normal person who's able to do these things by force of personality and character alone. In other words, you want to be the Messiah, deliver. And then you're the Messiah, but not before. (laughs) ¶¶
1: Back in the days of King Herod the Great, there was a baby born whose very first word was infinity. The baby's name was Hobart, and he possessed the unearthly ability to stare directly into your eyes and say the word over and over, as though seeing right through you to some deeper mystery. The baby was held by many prominent rabbis who gazed upon his face as though staring into the abyss. The things that baby must know, they walked away saying... But by the time Hobart grew to young adulthood, it became clear he might not actually know very much at all. In school, whenever he was called upon to answer a question, he would become tongue-tied and flustered. Hobart would look back on those early baby days as the pinnacle of his career. This was a time of messiahs, or more aptly, false messiahs, Hundreds of men and a few women claiming God had placed them on earth to redeem mankind. And Hobart, in spite of not having a ton of messianic qualifications, believed he was the man for the job. What kind of baby says stuff like infinity, Hobart asked his uncle Hawk. One with teeth, replied his uncle. You were born with these tiny little chompers. Downright creepy it was. Hamhock was an unflappable type who thought his nephew unsightly as a baby and megalomaniacal as an adult. Hobart believed he actually did know something profound and holy about God and the nature of existence. It was just that he wasn't able to communicate it, not in words. It's like we all want more than what there is, more than what we see, said Hobart. That, as I see it, is the job of the Messiah to not only ask God for more, but to demand it. I know it's what God wants me to do. When he was called upon to expand on this knowing what God wants business, Hobart would stutter, sputter, start and stop sentences midway. For Hobart, it was like there was this big chunk, a brick of knowing that he could not get out. Spiritual constipation. Maybe if he just knew more words. Maybe if he learned another language. And for a while, thinking wine might loosen his tongue to speak more eloquently of God's properties, Hobart became a drunk. He thought that maybe all he needed was a little push to get him going. God is mother kissing silver lightning, he would whisper drunkenly. Eventually, after emptying himself of all holy proclamations, he would throw up, curl into a ball, and go to sleep, whereupon his uncle Hamhock, excusing himself from his wife Esther's company, would lift Hobart up in his arms and carry him off to bed. As time passed, Hobart began to realize he needed more confreres than just ham hock, and so he took to hanging out with a crowd of false messiahs, men like himself who believed they were sent to Earth to save mankind. But Hobart knew that, unlike himself, these men were phonies, counterfeits, But still, he did need a peer group. The messiahs met at the local tea house and over cake would lay claim to their messiahhood. I am here to pull life from the jaws of death, said a false messiah named Elvin, licking cake crumbs from his lips. Another one who ran in their crowd was Juan. His father had claimed to be the messiah, and his father before him had too. Juan felt that messiahhood was his birthright, a family business. Hobart had once gone over to dinner at Juan's house, and it was impossible to get a word in edgewise. All three generations would not say or ask anything, so much as they would decree it. I command thee to pass thy holy redeemer on earth a dinner roll. By the time you were finished eating, your ears were ringing, and your stomach was quite upset. Still, Hobart admired the emphaticness with which the other loud messiahs made their claims. They spoke the way he imagined prophets spoke. He was envious of the other messiahs who were unafraid of embarrassing their families. Hobart's family ran a profitable smoked camel fat business, and he'd been warned not to taint the brand with public shenanigans. It was bad enough that, because of how queasy, greasy camel meat made him, he was unable to offer his father, uncle, and brothers much production help. The very least he felt he could do was keep a savioring on the down low. If, heaven willing, the stars were brought into alignment, Hobart wondered what kind of messiah he'd actually make. He wanted to be affable, but not too chummy. Commanding, but in a quiet sort of way. He wanted to be the kind of messiah who didn't get all high and mighty, all make me a sandwich because I'm the messiah, all riding on a lion with a seven-headed dragon in his jaws like the prophecies foretold. Prophecies are not, that kind of ostentation simply wasn't him. No, better to lay back and play it coy. Hobart decided one had to be careful not to proclaim oneself the Messiah too early on. It would be like screaming bingo and then realizing you're still a few letters short. There started showing up at the tea house a young woman named Sheila, whose family had recently moved to town. She introduced herself as a Lady Messiah, and insinuated herself into the group by bringing nutmeg squares from home and by being a good and silent listener. When asked about her messianic credentials, she'd offer statements that were absurd and confusing. My shoulder blades are very protruding, she'd say, like angel wings. It became the general consensus among the male messiahs that Sheila did not really believe herself to be the messiah at all, but rather was hoping to just meet new friends. Sometimes Hobart would ask her out for a promenade just have an audience to listen to his half-formed, poorly articulated ideas. There was something about Sheila, too, that made him feel at his ease, like he could speak his mind freely without being judged. Menahem ben Judah had a nickname, said Hobart, of the previous generation's biggest name, Messiah wannabe. All the biggies did. They called him the Comforter that shall relieve. I think I need a nickname, too. You have pretty bad morning breath, Sheila said. How about the modern-day Moses of the foot-odor breath. I've been told I do a wicked horror, he said, ignoring her. How about the dancing savior? I still like mine, Sheila said. The dancing savior, he repeated, tapping his foot, snapping his fingers, and sliding his head from his left shoulder to his right. And all the while, Sheila giggled. One afternoon, Hobart said to Hawk, "'Doesn't it just not make sense somehow "'that this, this world of the senses, is all there is? "'Don't you feel like there's got to be more?' "'You are right about that,' said Hawk, "'moving sacks of camel fat into a pile. "'There is more. "'I don't know if you've heard of it, but it's called work. "'You should try it sometime.' "'I will go to my grave, "'never having been able to communicate a thing,' said Hobart." The next day, Hobart decided to forego the tea house and visit Sheila's place instead. He asked her to take a walk with him. He also asked her to bring along a quill and paper so she could record his thoughts as they walked along. He thought it might be a good laid-back way for him to express what was in his heart. Later, he would have Sheila read back her notes so that they could extract the profundities. "'All of life a eucalyptus tart,' Sheila later read from her notes. "'It gives demons indigestion,' "'More, more, more, me want more. "'I'm sorry, I can't make heads or tails of this. "'Look, we want more than what is here,' Hobart tried to explain. "'I think I'm okay with what's here,' said Sheila. "'We want something that has as of yet been unnamed,' Hobart went on, ignoring her. "'And I am here to give a name to this craving, for the impossible, "'a craving for the infinite. "'Naming it will make it closer. "'I will call it Blarkenshmert.' No, or wait, Poopenvasser. No, wait. I will call it Hobarton. Hobart was not good with words, but this would be one word. Hobarton. One word would be easier to get out to the masses. He imagined approaching the downtrodden, the vague aching craving you are experiencing. He would say, placing his arm around the neck of a brow-beaten worker. ...is the Hobarton. If everyone asks God to reveal himself... ...then he'd have to. But we'd all have to ask. Every last soul would have to. The whole town would shout up at the sky... ...their fists pumping... ...led by their spiritual king, Hobart. Hobarton, Hobarton, they chant. Perhaps that is all a messiah is, thought Hobart. A man who has the audacity to demand the infinite. An ordinary guy... We just can't take it anymore.. Later that day, Hobart explained his theory of instant revelation to Hamhawk as Hobart's aunt Esther prepared them dinner. "Look," said his uncle. "Mostly everyone thinks the world is lacking, but we keep it to ourselves. We all know that everything we utter is in some way untrue. Even as the words are escaping our lips, we know we should be calling them back to be alive is to be a hypocrite yet to think on this all the time is to go mad or at least to stutter this is the job of the messiah said hobart to stutter on behalf of humanity let me explain to you hobarton i know all about hobarton interrupted hamhock but the magic word isn't hobarton it's love hobart looked hamhock up and down he knew his uncle to be a great many things sarcastic impatient insulting, occasionally profound, but corny he was not. Love? Hobart was taken aback. What are you talking about? asked Hobart. When someone loves you, then there is more, said Hamhock. They see you as being as unique as you see yourself in your own private thoughts. The closest you will ever come to being a big man will be in the heart of the person who loves you. The whole world will never fall to your feet "'dying to hear the nonsense you have to say. "'But if you're lucky, one person might. "'Hobart looked over at Hamhock's wife, his Aunt Esther, "'as she peeled potatoes for dinner. "'Worty, frumpy Esther. "'He tried to imagine her falling at Hamhock's feet. "'He just couldn't see it. "'What are you saying?' Hobart finally asked. "'That Sheila seems like a nice girl,' Hamhock said. "'And that she puts up with you is really quite something.' In the weeks that followed, Hobart thought about his uncle's words often. Considering the words of others was not really Hobart's way, but perhaps it was that what his uncle told him wasn't anything that, deep down, he did not already know. He wasn't making much progress on the savioring front, and he really did feel pretty good when he was around Sheila, and so Hobart began to court her in earnest. He showed up at her home with flowers and baby alligators, anything to amuse her, Most radically for Hobart, he tried to avoid doing all the talking, and for the very first time, he even asked her about herself. Among other things, he learned she was the youngest of four sisters, a very good dancer, and so afraid of being bored that she sometimes kept a small pebble in her sandals so that taking walks by herself would be made more interesting by foot pain. He also learned she was allergic to camel fat. He liked that. months passed and Hobart's feelings for Sheila grew, and when he tried to express these feelings, tried to make known to her the sweetness and hugeness of his newfound love, Hobart again discovered that he couldn't find the right things to say. It was that familiar feeling, like every word was getting caught in his throat. But to his own amazement, it did not frustrate him anymore. He just stopped trying, stopped all of his talking and speech-making, and instead gave in to a simple gesture— A gesture that came closer to expressing the thoughts and feelings of his heart more than anything he could ever say. He took Sheila in his arms and held her as close to himself as he could. And in those moments, for Hobart, it was enough.
3: the story of when I met a guy who may have
1: been the Messiah? No, no, you haven't. I'm. It was kind of a powerful experience I had this one time. I'm, I'm a little surprised, I must say. I don't, I don't necessarily think of you as being someone who thinks that they met the Messiah, like being that kind of guy.
3: I think it's a testament to what kind of guy I am, that I didn't quit my job and put on a pair of purple flip-flops and join a cult and start following this guy around. I mean, I met him,
1: Okay, so explain to me. So, w- w- what were the circumstances in which you met this would-be Messiah?
3: Well, it's going to sound a little peculiar in the retelling, but I was actually putting on skis in a ski lodge. I look over at this guy wearing a white flowing robe with long angelic hair.
1: He was wearing a white robe.
3: Maybe it was a white ski suit. I don't know. Uh-huh. It was robe-like. Okay. I just remember distinctly thinking at the time. After I left and I was out doing my business, I thought to myself, "Wow, oh, that guy was kind of like the Messiah." Wow. With the right brand rollout, I think we could have reached a multinational audience and he could have delivered the message.
1: Wait, what are you talking about? You thought this guy, I mean, you thought like you were in the presence of a, a, a possible messiah? Exactly. No, I but that's thinking- not what you're You're saying that you, you think you could have marketed this guy as a messiah.
3: Well, I, I don't see what the difference is. I mean, if an what? actual messiah comes, the messiah, a messiah, a guy who could have been the messiah, it's not like his message is going to automatically, magically come across. It's and, just like any other product, you got to tell people what to think. This is the Messiah you're
1: talking about.
3: If I was going to introduce someone as big as the Messiah, the whole thing would be done in, like, a massive coliseum with lighting, so you have the halo effect, like maybe a shaft of light down from the
1: heavens. Wait, hang on a second. The guy's the Messiah. I mean, he doesn't need stagecraft.
3: First of all audiences today are conditioned from special effects in movies to see dinosaurs rise from the dead and all kinds of stuff happen, spaceships blow up the White House. I mean, I don't know if you've ever been to Las Vegas, but there's some magic shows that are unbelievable. Okay, so
1: so what, would you, what would you propose, you know, bringing all of your uh, marketing savvy to bear as being the, the you know, the proper way to, to, to launch the Messiah?
3: I would do it the same way when you go to a massive concert. Mm-hmm. They don't just walk out on stage, tune up, plug in their patch cords and start playing. The build-up is part of the excitement. So you have their anxiety and their fear and their excitement builds and, builds and builds and builds and builds. And suddenly, by the time they open the curtains, it's like they're ready to rip out their seats and rip out their own hair. That's what I'm talking about. Now, I'm talking about a proper show. Is
1: okay, what I'm about. well, don't you think that showing up on Earth and bringing, you know, world peace, that would be enough?
3: Peace is about the least exciting thing you could possibly do as a messiah. I mean, it's, it's important. Don't get me wrong. I like peace as much as the next one. Right. But peace is what? Chirping birds and some crickets and some butterflies? I mean, get out of here. Who's even going to notice? With all due respect, you're just making yourself sound ignorant. I mean, I, if you really want to make a splash, you have got to come in with something like a massive, massive explosion—only an explosion of peace. That's why I'm thinking like you'd want to have something on the scale of maybe you blow up the moon or something like that. And you have a huge light show in the sky.
1: <laughs> <laughs> what are you laughing about? Uh, you're, you're suggesting that 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 to kind of celebrate the Messiah's arrival, you would <laughs> you would blow up the moon. <laughs> You know, you better watch the laughter, son. You're going to get smited. <laughs> I'm talking
3: about something to get people's attention.
1: What is the moon? <laughs> well, what, what could possibly get people's attention more than the arrival of the Messiah?
3: Blowing up the moon. What are you so jaded you don't think blowing up the moon is going to get people's attention? I know what audiences want, and believe me, if you said on like Tuesday night at 8 o'clock I'm blowing up the moon, you'd have a massive, massive tune in
1: audience. And you don't think that the Messiah showing up to Earth would be enough? The, re- know, the revelation think, of the Messiah, you know, the golden age. It's absolutely illuminating something. Illuminating the divine within everyone.
3: It's definitely something. But you ride down, like, say, a nine-mile-long Cadillac made of gold into the ocean. You blow up the moon, and then you get all the fish tap dancing. And then, believe me, at that point, it's called making an entrance. Then you get people's attention. Mm-hmm. If you just showed up in the middle of Times Square in your socks and underwear and said, I'm the Messiah, and even if you were, people would walk right past you, believe me. They mm-hmm. might throw a coin at your cup or something, but believe me, no one's going to pay attention point is you'd want to put together one of these super groups like a Broadway review you know in the end of the show when they all come out on stage and sing one song together I think when the Messiah comes here the story goes that he's supposed to bring back the dead right mm-hmm. and picture that wait, picture you... a stage with Julius Caesar and Socrates and Abe Lincoln and Dwight Eisenhower all of them on stage with you two singing like you know we shall overcome <laughs> you know and you, you bring back all these dead people like Frank Sinatra and Liza Minnelli wait a second first all
1: of, well first of all Liza Minnelli's not even dead the point is you would have no... a super group uh-huh Then,
3: after these people have gotten their money's worth and had their chicken dinner and their Mm -hmm. full night of entertainment, then, that's when the stage opens up, risers come up, smoke machine fog.
1: Okay, now you don't think all of that might be a little bit, I don't know, beneath the dignity of a messiah?
3: I think... A messiah would understand the value and importance of such things, and I'm not saying that I'm important in any way. But I think a messiah would need someone to handle their media appearances. They need him to book
1: them onto the right shows. Someone, someone and, like you, you're saying.
3: Someone along these lines who's going to do a media calendar so they could have a proper cadence
1: for the rollout. So okay, so fine. So once he makes his big splashy appearance, then the, what would come next?
3: Maybe some sightings and people us. Uh, Mm -hmm. Was that the Messiah scene Having an intimate dinner At the Ivy With Angelina Jolie You slowly tease in He goes from being Just a handsome stranger To maybe like M You give him a surname That just suggests who he is So people
1: are like Wait did you say M I'm just thinking Off the top of my head Like the initial M For Messiah yeah. Yeah, but this this isn't a new Batman movie coming out. I mean we'd be That's talk- where you're dead wrong.
3: I would say this is Batman. I'd say for opening night you want to be able to project that single iconic image in the sky on the trace lights like a bat, and sooner or later you would have pajamas with this icon all over M? it that you could sell in stores nationwide and you'd make hundreds of millions of dollars just in licensing. I mean goods.
1: You, I mean don't don't you think this sounds I don't know, like a little like a little chintzy?
3: You don't get it. You would do it by scotch taping a flyer to a telephone pole near your house, which you wrote in magic marker, and you hope that some people showed up to your garage sale. That is not the way to roll out a Messiah's return. This has got to be done right or not at all. You, you just have such a tiny view of the world that you but, think... No, that's not... That's, it's the opposite. Let me that, explain to you what we're talking about here. We're talking about the Messiah, right? And you yeah, want to handle but, this like roommate wanted on some posting with little ripoff tabs that you hang in the laundromat. I mean, do you want to play in the big leagues or not? This, this is not small potatoes. We're talking uh, about the biggest possible announcement you could make, a game-changing night. Now, you tell me. Is that best handled with fireworks and a massive pneumatic stage with fog machines and smoke and lights and the whole thing? And, and what, what's your idea of an ideal launch? that you would serve cupcakes and juice and I mean, I'm not... your microphone be feeding back? And halfway through, they'd be checking their watches, and they'd wish the Messiah hadn't come. They'd wish they'd stayed home and watched that night's TV show. What a terrible you thing don't to say. Get no, you that... just don't get it. If the Messiah comes, I hope you don't get a chance to get your grubby little hands on it and ruin it for everyone. Ruin it for all humanity.
0: Wiretap today. You heard Rabbi Ruben Putko and Gregor Ehrlich. Wiretap is produced by Jonathan Goldstein with Mira Bertwintonic and Carolyn Warren. Production assistance from Crystal Duham. Tune into Wiretap Sunday at one, four Pacific time, and Wednesday evening at eleven thirty. You can also hear Wiretap across North America on Sirius Satellite Radio one thirty seven. Reach us through our website at cbcca wiretap where you can download the latest wiretap ringtone
1: what could possibly get people's attention more than the arrival of the messiah blowing up the moon
0: announce your loyal listenership and hatred of the moon with every ring of your phone